0: Welcome everyone to Drisha's full program and the final class in this series on Caring for Others, the Torah and Ourselves, Jewish Perspectives on the Ethics of Care by Sarah Zager. In this session, we'll use a series of Agadot to consider other places where care might appear, including infertility, pregnancy loss, and mourning. We'll use these sources to explore how analyzing these experiences can expand our sense of what care and religious obligation looks like. With that, I'll turn it to you, Sarah. Thank you so much, Evie. And thank you for, for all of your support through through
1: these three mm-hmm. sessions. It's been a joy to work with you. Um have your, your smiling face in
0: Same. my Zoom
1: window <laughs> each Sunday. <laughs> um, and thank you to everyone for, for coming along this evening. Um, so as Evie said, I think in the end, we're only going to get to sort of part of the, the story here, but Um, What I want to do today is start off with a brief reminder of the model of care ethics that we saw last week in Mary Benjamin's recent book, The Obligated Self, and then we will kind of use that as a jumping off point to suggest that there are actually like, she points to one model, but we can actually think of a much wider range of, of experiences as resources for thinking about care and also for thinking about Um, religious life and obligation. So that's kind of the the broad sweep of where we're headed. So with that, I'm going to share screen Um, like so. Okay, somebody give me a thumbs up if you see the share. Yes, hooray. Okay, great. So last week, what we looked at was a kind of debate between Mara Benjamin, who's a contemporary Scholar of Jewish thought, also an alumna of the Drisha Scholars Circle of, of your um, And her kind of debate with Levinas about the idea that ethics shouldn't be an abstract thing. It should be instead focused on attending to the particular needs of particular people. And she really focuses on the experience of caring for her own young children and their very specific needs that you know a kid will, will have. So that's um that's the, that's the picture that she, that she presents and she links it up right at the beginning of the book to the Jewish practice of wearing tefillin. Um, wow, right on cue, Avigail Halperin enters as soon as I say the word tefillin. Those of you who know Avigail will understand that this is a, this is a fitting moment because Avigail is a, a deep lover of the, the mitzvah tefillin. So here we go, um, right on cue. Um, so, I want us to just read this passage and kind of see what what Benjamin is doing and then I'm going to give you a few texts that will kind of explode it to a much wider range of things. All right. so this is, I think, basically the second or third paragraph of this book. The weekday morning ritual of tefillin is practiced by religiously observant Jews. As practiced by religiously observant Jews stages the key narrative of the Jewish of the people of Israel during prayer. Small boxes containing the words of scripture, wrapped in black leather straps to one arm and the crown of one's head. So far, so good. The daily act of quite literally placing the words of Torah on the body is understood as a fulfillment of the biblical command to study and remember the words of Torah. This all should sound to this audience pretty familiar. Buying these words as a sign upon your hand, let them serve as a symbol between your eyes, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so here's where where things are going to get kind of more important. I'm going to skip down to about here. By wrapping oneself in tefillin, the worshiper reenacts the narrative of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, of leaving Egypt, and assents to it. So there's something that goes on by you're putting these boxes on your body, then you're assenting to a certain kind of narrative and being part of the covenant that comes from that. All right. But she said Obser- religiously observant Jews, but she's left the gender piece out. But we know that for most of Jewish history, mostly men were children and very few women did. Um, so she's going to say there's an alternative model that most Jewish women have practiced that is less, that is still about obligation, but it's about a differently structured kind of obligation. Jewish women, like many other women throughout the centuries, have intimately known their own distinctive form of boundedness. They don't need to bind something literally onto their arm the boundedness of living with, being responsible for, and attending to children. As with fill-in, this boundedness is marked on the body, carved on muscles taut from the weight of carrying children, etched on the face in, in lines of sleepnesses, worry and delight, engraved in the visceral response to the cry and needs of one's child. Child rearing is a commitment in which love flows between mothers and children. Um, and is expressed in the responsibility that women take for caring for their children. So now she's set up this nice opposition where tefillin is sort of the male stereotypically way of enacting obligation, and mothering is the stereotypically female way of enacting obligation, right? So um, she's gonna say, but whereas the Jewish male self is told in the imperative right, just telling you go out and do something to bind himself to the words of God. A living human being gives maternal selves this imperative countless times a day. So Jewish men have to take on something to bind themselves to the word of God. Jewish women have children who then tell them to do various things. And that's actually kind of analogous to the, the, um, to the experience, to to the word of God, right? So like at last week, for those of you who are with us, we talked about the fact that Benjamin in a certain way is saying that like the demands of a young child who's saying like, feed me right now, have in her mind a theological status that's like not unlike something like this, Sarah said which is a kind of wild, like big theological claim. Um, So there are these two different models. to bind himself to the living words of God, a living human being makes this make gives maternal selves this imperative countless times a day, inscribing them with the dynamic Torah of their child. Right. So for Jewish women, the child sort of themselves confers a set of obligations that are basically like mitzvot. Men's subjection is aspirational and metaphysical. Men want to be bound to the Torah, so they enact that by literally strapping themselves to the Torah and they hope that they will kind of aspire to this metaphysical connection with God. Women's is genuine and concrete. So I want you to see in this last line, the way that she set these up as oppositions, right? Aspirational and metaphysical on the one hand and on the other hand, genuine i.e. not to do with aspiration already there, I think, um, and concrete, sort of really physicalized in the world in a way that this metaphysical obligation is not, right? That's the kind of, that's the, the sort of opposition that she's set up for us. Now then we might ask, well, wait a minute, like, isn't fill in actually really physical and concrete and like that's the whole point there are these straps you really got to strap them to yourself it's not just a kind of. Totally abstract thing, in fact it's particularized already that might be true, and we might also say, as she kind of at various points wants to say in the book that, um, in fact. There's something metaphysically or philosophically significant, religiously significant about the relationships we have with children. So it's never gonna be a kind of hard and fast story, but it is nonetheless um, a, like, she's setting it up as an opposition. Questions about that before we move on or comments? So far, so good. Okay, so what I wanna do for you in the next, like, few minutes is a little bit explode this sense of both kind of what fillin are um, and how that might cue into gender in interesting ways. So um, for that, we're going to have to take a brief detour into the world of Hilchot Shabbat. Um, okay. so. In Masechet Shabbat, there's a long set of Mishnayot and then Gemarot that list all of the things that you can and can't carry out into the public domain. In general, you can't carry things into the public domain. And then, but then there are things that are like sort of, but you can wear your clothes, right? That's sort of taken as a given. Then there are kind of interesting boundary cases about like, is X really clothes? Is X an object? What if it's like somewhere in between? How do I know? So, in the series of this Mishnah, these Mishnah, we get this, this Mishnah, which talks about boys going out with their knots. Okay, so the Mishnah says, Habanim They go out with knots. That's what we get from this Mishnah. Not very much. That's very helpful. It's very confusing. Like, what does this mean? Okay, and then there's also princes can go out with their bells and even the Mishnah kind of already says, oh, but these are things that were kind of currently in practice and they were the things that people normally kind of wore, but still not hundred percent clear like what they actually are. Yeah? All right. So, the Gemara usefully has our question, which is what on earth are these knots anyway, right? Okay. So, the Gemara asks, Ayla, Mike, Shereen, what are these things? Kihada Amar Avin Barhuna, Amar Rabbihama Barguria, Ben Ben Sheyesh Gaguim Alaviv, Notel Ritsua Mina al Shell Yamin, Vikoshir So Rabbi Hama Barguria says, okay, a, a son who is longing for his father takes a string from his shoelace, from his right shoe, and wraps it on his left arm. So if you're not left-handed like me, what arm do you put your tefillin on? On your left arm, okay? So Amar Rav Nachman Bar Yitzchak, and the other way around is that. So you have to put, the the child has to take the shoelace from, that, from the right side and put it on the left side and not the other way around. You can remember this because it's connected to tefillin. Okay, so what do we make about this business about shoelaces? Well, the question is, what is the son doing? The son misses his father and there's a kind of procedure for the son to follow in order to, <coughs> excuse me, um, in order to act, kind of publicly enact, physically enact that sense of missing their parent. Um, it's unclear to me it seems like it's a child, um, because it's always described as banim, but it, I'll leave open the possibility, it doesn't have to be a young child, seems like it probably is, but there's something kind of rhetorically or um, connected in our imagination between putting on tefillin and the practice that one, that young boys have when they miss their father, um, who seems to be absent, right? It's not like they go out and they go, like, I miss my father, if I'm going to go see my father. They wrap this string around. So on the one hand, you can, you can read from the practice of wrapping the string to wrapping tefillin as saying, wrapping the, the tefillin knot is like, is a way that you enact your longing for God and the fact that you miss God as a kind of father figure. Um, but I also, right, so that's a little bit of a different model of, um, of what the practice of putting on tefillin is, then, then Benjamin has. It's like, oh, this is this is a practice that's mostly about enacting my membership in the people. But what's going on here for the for the child? The, the father is not there, and it's not even clear that the child has some hope that the father will be there down the road. The child is somehow enacting and kind of nursing almost. Um, their sense of loss for their father and their sense of wanting to be with their father when they, when they might not be able to. So that I think already starts to kind of disturb our initial picture of like what we were for in this little metaphor and, and maybe then can help us um, reshape Benjamin's picture which is all about men as these kind of formed actors who are then trying to communicate with God. Here we have a young boy who is yearning for a parent all right, so in the discussion in the Gemara about this Mishnah, um, we also get all kinds of other things that the rabbis think are sort of genuinely related, <coughs> excuse me, um, to, to, the, uh, to this practice of wearing knots. Okay, so the rabbis teach this nice little b'rita and here's the b'rita. Tanu <speaking> Rabbanan, yot in ba <Hebrew> What? Okay, we can go out. Mishum Rabbi Meir. Rabbi Meir says we can go. One may go out with a what's called a preservation stone. Question is, what on earth is a preservation stone? Preservation stone is a stone. Um, if you look in the Shabbat Koran Gemara, there's a nice little picture of various ones that have been found in archaeological sites. That is a kind of amulet designed to prevent miscarriage or thought to prevent miscarriage. So. The idea is Rebbe Meir says you can go out on Shabbat holding this item. In general, you wouldn't be able to go out on Shabbat holding a stone, but for this item, you can. Okay, why are we allowing this? What, what does this amount? It's a way of, again, in a similar kind of way, I think to, to the sun, it's a way of um, the woman performing her like strong longing and desire for somebody who's not there I, or not yet there, right? For, for the health of a child. Okay, at least at the moment from Rabbi Mer, it's it's at least it seems like it's a fetus. Okay. Amru Afba Mishkal They said, oh, even a counterweight to the Evan Tikuma is sufficient. So now it's not only, oh, you can carry this amulet that like is supposed to prevent miscarriage, but in fact, you can carry a thing that represents the amulet. It's not even the amulet itself, it's just some rock that's the same weight. Okay, fine. Vilo shehifla. It's Shehifila, sorry. It's not, it doesn't have to be someone who has previously had a history of miscarriage. It doesn't have to be that she's actually, she has some like scientific basis to be afraid. Just the fact that she is, seems to be concerned or seems to want to protect herself with this practice is sufficient. even just the fear of it, is enough. and it doesn't even have to be that she's she's um, that she is pregnant. Right? It doesn't have to be that the woman is pregnant to start with, and then is worried about miscarrying an actual fetus that she knows is there. Rather, ella Rather, it's enough that it's possible that she might become pregnant, and then she might miscarry. So either this could be she doesn't quite know whether she's pregnant or not, right? That, that seems like it's a possibility, but it, at, the rabbis are opening up the idea that you can carry this stone and kind of embody this act of longing, um, or even potentially I want to open the door for care for this unborn child um, or imagined child, even if there's not actually a pregnancy there. That doesn't really matter to the rabbis. What matters is this, and even if it's not really that rock, just a rock that kind of represented and is the same weight is sufficient to actually let the, for the rabbis to say, you can go out and carry this on Shabbat, even though normally that would be prohibited, possibly even biblically, depending on how you carry it precisely. So the rabbis are making a lot of room for performing some form of care for a being who's not actually there. Um, okay. Well let's just go one more step. Um Amar Amar Rev. Yemar Bar Yemer Bar Schlema Mishme Dabai Vudain Vitkal baye Abay Mishkal de Mishkal. Mai teku Okay, so Rabbi Simlai, sorry, I misread Rabbi Simlai said in the name of Abaye, this applies only when you have a stone that's really the same weight. So the counterweight has to have some kind of physical relationship to the real stone. Abaye says, okay, what about a counterweight to a counterweight? So you get you have the original Evan Tekuma, the original preservation stone, then you get some stone that's the same weight, and then you actually get a third one that's the same weight as the second one. So now you're really at far removed from the original thing. Rabbi say, We're not going to answer that question. That's that's kind of we're just gonna let that let that question remain open. So what do we what do we make of this text? Kind of in the normal course of rabbinic law, the rabbis would not have allowed anyone to carry the stone at all, or they may have made some kind of exception where there's some kind of obvious medical need. But there isn't that here, at least not in all the cases, right? Because we don't have to have some previous kind of well-grounded fear. She doesn't even have to be pregnant. Or even, no, or even, like, there's no language of even suspicion. It's just the idea that she's longing for something that's not quite there. So I want to open up the possibility that actually what's going on in this text is, or at least we can read it this way, maybe it's not what's going on in this text for the people who wrote it, um, that there's a kind of care that we do for people who aren't present to us. Whether that's people we miss who are absent, which is an experience I think all of us are having a lot these days, um, or someone whose presence you hope for but actually isn't in the world yet and doesn't have the specific kind of features that you know Mara Benjamin's like embodied child is going to to come and give you commandments, but that nonetheless that person, you know, either imagined or lost permanently or um, or just gone for some other reason, is nonetheless someone for whom you can care in some meaningful way. And there's actually kind of that experience itself shapes the actor and and makes a difference. This is the suggestion I want to take out of this text. And hopefully that will let us reread this initial story where like, ah, right, as we said up above, um, men's subjection is aspirational and metaphysical and women's genuine and concrete actually for the woman carrying the stone, genuine let's leave out of it, but there is something abs- abstract or at least not totally present to her or absent that she, she's hoping for, but isn't maybe there or at least isn't known to be there in some kind of direct way um, that like the dynamic Torah of this here child who has these specific needs um, might, might make available. Does that make sense? So, I think this, this sort of disturbs the, the initial uh, kind of lineup of, of the male and, and, and female versions. Questions about that? Are there are things in the chat that I've missed here. Ah, OK, great. All right. So, what I want to do next. Is suggest to you that actually not only is it the case that the tradition kind of makes legal ana- like legal allowances for um, caring for people who are not present, but actually that that experience itself is central to the to the tradition. Like that's a big claim, but I think I can think I can I can by the end of the hour convince you of it at least to some degree. Um, there is that form of yearning is actually like built into the metaphors that we use to talk about redemption itself right so the original kind of right like if we started out with a sort of yetziat mitzrayim theme of like exodus from egypt and that is the model of redemption there's another model that's in biblical sources that is linked up to this kind of expectation as care situation so what I want to do in our remaining time is present that model to you and spend some time sort of seeing where it pops up in text and thinking about it. Okay, good. So I think we, many of us, right have spend some time with the kind of uh, opening narratives of the Torah, especially recently, know that like there's a kind of repeated trope of the Imahot struggling to conceive children. Um, but that narrative in, in its sort of afterlife in the prophets, and, in, and we'll see in Psalms in a minute, becomes like the, one of the central metaphors that's used to describe like Zion or Zion waiting for its redemption. So there's a way in which this starts out as a kind of a story about Sarah and Rivka and the whole, the whole thing, but by the end is actually um, a metaphor that's used to describe redemption as a whole. So, kind of one classic place um, which we get from it may be familiar to you from uh, the Haftarot following Tisha B'Av um, is, is this verse in Isaiah. So, right, shout out, O barren one, that's usually the word, not like no longer the preferred term, but here we go, um, right, who bore no child, actually, you know, shout for joy, even though you didn't have, like, birth pains, um, you will actually have more children, you sort of, forsaken wife, let's say, um, than the one who has, uh, right, is those espoused, is what JPS gives you, which is, bad English, right? Um, those, the children of, of one who is, is married. Okay. So here you already see that the, the barren woman is a kind of trope that's being used to describe redemption. redemption. Now, on the one hand, this might, you might just be like, oh yes, this is a nice trope. It's a biblical like metaphor. We're not going to read too much into it. But I actually want you to, to, to lean into this a little and like imagine that what's going on is that the, the, the biblical author here actually wants you to think that the experience of the akara who then bears a child is the experience of redemption for the people of Israel. And so it does matter kind of what's, what's the thing that's going on in her head. One other place we see this, and this is a verse we're going to use to read, um, we're going to use both of these verses to read uh, this little mitrash um, that we have uh, just been saying a lot recently in Halil, is another place where the idea that a, a barren woman then bears ch- children kind of unexpectedly is a, is a metaphor for redemption, right? Moshivi um, akaret ha bait, mecha hallelujah who he seats the the barren woman in her home. Um, You can have a lot of fun with Bible commentaries trying to understand this very simple word, habite, A mother with children. And again, that seems like it's a metaphor for redemption, but it's also, let's imagine that it might be a kind of more literal thing. Okay, so what we're now gonna see in the next text is An effort to match up the the prophetic and later, uh, you know, prophetic prophets and Tehillim's picture of the the barren woman who then bears children with the actual narratives of that in other parts of the Bible. So we're gonna kind of plug one into the other. And in the course of that, kind of unpack the metaphor a little bit and try to kind of understand what it might mean if we're going to use it as a metaphor for what Israel's redemption looks like. So this is from the derab Kahana, which is a kind of late, late midrashic text, and you're going to see that they they sort of step through very, very elegantly. Um, and I've I've bolded the verses for you because they. Um, they kind of pop up again and again and it helps you hopefully see the structure. Okay, so let's let's read. All right, so it starts, Sikhs of Kahana always starts with an initial verse that's kind of the heading. And so the heading we have here is Roni Akara, right? Which is the verse we just had. Um, the uh, rejoice, O oh barren one. Okay. Oh, I told you I would bold verses, but I cheated on one of them. There we go. Okay, Habanim The one who God seats the childless woman among her household as happy mother of children. All right. Shava There are seven barren women, Sarah. Okay. Rivka, Rachel, Vilea, V'ishto Shel Manoach, that's six. Who's gonna be the seventh one? Zion. Zion. Okay, so all of these ones, most of them I think should be pretty familiar. Eshet Manoach is like a little bit of a weird case, but like basically these are these are kind of standard biblical stories. And Zion. Oh I didn't know that Zion was a barren woman. Here, I'm gonna understand how Zion is like a barren woman. So what they're gonna do is step through and connect up these verses with each of the the characters in turn, and we're gonna get we're gonna be aiming for the grand finale, which is Zion. Isn't Zion compared to a barren woman in Echa. Yes, I yes, and in many other places. Um, also. In addition to the barren woman comparison, which I'm like interested in kind of excavating and and using for our own purposes, um, there's a lot of uh, like unfaithful or uh, kind of prostituting language that's also used for thinking about Zion as a woman, um, which I'll say I am less excited about um, than I am excited about this, but you know, it's all there. yeah, so the, it is in, in Echa And it's also like Zion is compared to a barren woman who's then like it, it, maybe she has children and they've died and she's mourning and like things go south in Echa as, as, as they tend to do. OK, good. So now we're going to move through each one. Moshiva v'yakheret habayit, zo imenu That it re- refers to Sarah. Because it says that Sarah was barren. Easy verse, no problems. When does she become the handy mother of children? Sarah become, that Sarah would suckle children. I want you to notice, I mean, anybody remember where this verse comes from, this little fragment? This isn't when she actually does suckle the children because by the time that's happening, right? by the time Yitzhak is, um, is like weaned, Sara has kind of basically left the scene in a lot of ways. Um, no, this is Abraham being like, oh my God, I never thought that I would see that happen. So there's something interesting going on there. It's not really a verse about her at all versus the one, right? Sara, T.A. Uh, Sarai Akara really is about her. So, there's something interesting going on there. All right. I think it's also just worth noting before we move on, and we're going to see this theme pop up again and again as we go. Eim ha banim Is that actually what happens in this narrative? Well, maybe. Um, Sarah's childbearing becomes very complicated. She has like her child ends up in a kind of horrible rivalry situation. Then Abraham tries to sacrifice him. Then she dies pretty quickly after that. And at least in rabbinic imagination and dies because of that incident. So this is not like, it's sort of the text is tricking you. The Midrash is tricking you into thinking that this all this story turned out well. But it turned out in a much more complicated way, right? It wants you to end with redemption, but it's not quite that. Okay, same same maneuver. Davaracher, new one. Moshi via habayit zorivka. That refers to Rivka. Via teriyitzchak la Hashem lenochach ishtoki akarahi. Right. Um, this was this was like two to ago. Isaac pleaded with God on behalf of his wife because she was barren. Notice again, this is Isaac and not her, but okay. She becomes the mother of children, the happy mother of children. Because, right, um Isaac prays and she has has she becomes pregnant. Again, here, I think you can complicate the picture of Imhabanim's Mecha because already she also has a very, like, right? This is, we get his prayer, we don't get hers, right? Her prayer is like, why is this, why am I here? Like, why is this happening to me? Which you can read all kinds of ways. You can read that as, like, this is a horrible pregnancy, and like, how am I going to survive it? You can read it as, like, I don't even want this in the first place. like, there are lots of options there for how to read it, but it seems at minimum it's complicated, and certainly like when those twins are born, things get even more complicated because then they end up in this like horrible, destructive rivalry with one another, etc. etc. Okay. Fine. New one the varakher Moshivia This is Leia. Fine. Bayar Hashem Kisnu God saw that Leah was, was hated or unloved. And he opened her womb. OK. From here, we learn that Leah herself was an akara. Now, there's a little bit of a trick here, because the fact that they have to tell you this means that it's a little bit of a tough sell. Because the other ones, right, we didn't have to tell you that Sarah was akara. The text told us that. Now we have to tell you. Okay, to Midrash, they're playing a little literary fun with us. Fine. Um, All right, does anyone remember this context Is this, this, this pasuk? This is, maybe my husband will like me now because I have, born him six sons. Also a kind of tragic and horrible story that has gone wrong, right? She is, bears all these children, but it never really, it never quite works out for her. All right. One more. Then she has a a child. Okay, so here is like, this one is the one that, right, I I told you before that the Midrash had to kind of shoehorn in a little. In my reading, this is the one you have to shoehorn in um, because uh, Manoach's wife's children end up in all kinds of complicated political dealings that aren't as horrible as the preceding stories but are still like not excellent okay and then we have the last one also famous this is this is hannah but you had children but hannah did not Banim. oh sorry but okay A happy mother of children refers to Hannah conceiving and bearing three sons and two daughters. Okay, right? Hannah gives birth to Shmuel. Shmuel then presides over all kinds of bad political situations for the people um, in various ways. So these last two, I think, don't fit my interpretation quite as nicely, but there we have it. All right. And then... The the kind of well, actually, before we get to the piece, of resistance, I want to then ask, what are they doing? Right. The rabbis know all the things I just pointed out to you. They get that there. They know their Bible better than I do. Didn't take rocket science to figure out that, like things didn't turn out so well for Sarah. So what are they trying to do here? I want to suggest to you that one thing they're trying to do is direct your attention away from what happens to the kids. Right. They're kind of like they're papering that over and sort of giving you like that's not the point of this story. The point is her expectation and desire to have a children that ends up to have children that is unfulfilled for a very long time. And then God kind of sweeping in and redeeming her. And what happens afterwards is kind of off screen. Right. It's it's hidden and is not totally paid attention to potentially to her at her expense. Yeah, it was out of hand.
2: Yes. I... Is this okay to participate? Yeah, it's lovely.
1: Please, please join the conversation.
2: Well, one thing that I've been thinking as you've been reading through each one, the the fact that life is real after you, after a woman has children doesn't mean that she isn't a happy mother of children. Yeah, good. Okay. Right. So, so it's, we don't live in a, in a um, pampers commercial live in real life and i think it sort of illustrates yes there is reality and yes there will be all sorts of real relationships between the children between the parents and the children but that doesn't mean that your life isn't fulfilled when you become a mother
1: right so i think in a way like what you've opened up for us is to think about yeah like It is horrible that, for example, like Rivka's children end up hating one another, but that's not really the, that's like, doesn't take away from her being also a happy mother of children in some kind of deeper and more, more intense sense. I think that's really beautiful and really helpful for kind of seeing some of the dynamics here. Um, I wonder then if we kind of flip that back on, flip the metaphor back around, right, when the, when Tehillim is saying, if we have a vision of redemption, that's not, like, everything is great, and we all are so happy, and we, like, live in a Pampers commercial, right, to use your phrase, Um, but instead, like, life is real, things get complicated, and, you know, maybe the children end up hitting each other, and maybe, like, your crazy husband decides to take your kid off and try to sacrifice him on a mountain. Like maybe these crazy things happen, but there's still a version of redemption that's kind of made yes, 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 right. I think that's like a really powerful re- way to reread this line, and I've never read it back into the psalm, which like I think can be really, really powerful. So next time you say hallel, I want everybody to to think back to to reading it in this more complex way, and I, and a picture of redemption that's a little more complex. Okay. Yeah, that's really, that's a, that's a lovely insight. Okay. So I think what they're trying to, they are uh, in a certain way though, I think trying to, the dynamic kind of textually that they're pulling out for you is like, there's something that she doesn't have in each case that she wants and that is impossible for her and God intervenes and makes it possible. Right? And then whatever happens, happens. But that's that's the dynamic of redemption and the both, right? Like to the extent that they have to do some work to show that Leia was really quote unquote akara, they need to kind of prove it to you. Um, so that state is important in a kind of anticipation of redemption mode. All right, so let's see the last one. Tavarachher. Moshive akheratabait this is Zion. Roni Akara lo yelda. All right, good proof text. How do we know that zion is an Akara? Because we have this nice verse where that, that uses that metaphor. Very good. It's good that we had that verse from prophets right at the start. You will see yourself who bore these for me? All right, so. If you're Chazal, then you actually have all of these verses like stored up in your brain. But if you're not Chazal and you're me, you need to look them up in a book. Luckily for you, here they are in this sheet. So when I want to just read this, read, open this out, and see what they're doing with the verse. Okay. So this is this is a section from Isaiah, which gives you another of these visions of, of what's gonna what the redemption will be like. Maharubanaeh, Maharsaeh, or your children are coming, right? Those who have ruined and savage, you are gonna leave. Your children are coming. So this is kind of textually related to some of the eight tropes that uh, that John is, is pointing to. I think Akev. that sounds possible, that it's the Haftarah for Akev. I don't have a memory for these things, so I believe you. Okay, so isaviv Chai ani ki kaadi tilbashi kakala. All right. So look up around you; they're all here, and you know the God says you shall wear them all like jewels. Deck yourself out like a bride—a kind of reliving of of the the kind of how the story is supposed to go. All right. All right. So all of your your crowded streets, your right, everything will be crowded and, and lovely, and your destroyers who killed everyone and left things empty are gonna be gone. So far, so good. Here's where here's where things get important. All right. All right, so the children you thought you had lost will settle and say to you, this place is too crowded for me. There's not enough space. Make room for me because there'll be so many of them coming back. All right, and now's the verse that are gonna quote. V'amarta bilvaveich, mi yalid li at who bore these for me? V'ani shekhula gluda gola v'sura. V'eile mi gidel, hein ani nesharti levadi, Eila eifo heim. Who brought these, who bore them? I.e. wasn't me who bore them, right? Um, and who raised them? I was alone and childless. Um, where do they all go? Like, who, who, where do they all come from? How did this all work? All right. So then think about this. So it seems like here, right, just inside on just if you just read this text from Michelle with no other stuff sort of sneaking in, what's going on? Well, Exile is ending. Everyone's coming back. Everything's going to be great. Zion is bringing in her children. And it's like, oh, my gosh, how did you multiply so much when I wasn't even there? All right. But if we sort of flip it back on, like, what's the metaphor that's being used here? who's Who's the person? There's a story that's being told where the mother figure, who is Zion, had children born for her by someone else. And her question is, like, who did this for me? And that's the metaphor that we're gonna use for Israel's redemption. Right? So, Israel's redemption in a certain way is parallel to the redemption of Sarah and Rivka and Leah and Hannah and Eshad Noach, but in it, right? Because there's, there are no children and then suddenly there are. But there's something different about it because actually the children are, first of all, born by someone else. Right, there's a kind of almost surrogacy going on here. Um, so the children are born by someone else, and also um, there, there's potentially also the loss of children who we didn't see, which, which we didn't see in the other stories. Right. So it, it, depending on how you read this, you might say um, the woman who's being imagined in this path in Isaiah is has children who then are gone, or then she thinks have died. And then they come back, and she's. But then you have to do like Mia Ya lidli at ayla, who was who bore these for me. Who who did that? Like, so there's some kind of dis. Not I don't want to say disconnect, but there's some kind of different mode of of children being born, kind of capital B, um, that, is, that is being played out in this text than in, um, than in some of the other biblical narratives that we've seen. All right, so what I want to suggest then is that the, the model in this midrash for Israel's redemption and the model of the experience of waiting for redemption is the model of the barren woman who's like praying to conceive and then eventually God kind of intervenes or even the barren woman, I hate that term, but whatever. Okay, Um, who then like has a surrogate who sweeps in and helps or we can imagine all kinds of other complicated uh, scenarios where like, who did this for me? How was this even made possible? Yeah,
2: yeah, El. Um, you're really uh, stimulating. <laughs> Perhaps the last paragraph could be read as a rhetorical question. And the answer to that is Hashem. This yeah. is, um The Shekhinah feels so, so despondent and so empty. All, all of her children are, yeah. are gone and dead. And then she turns around and And they're all there again. Hashem Hashem did this miracle. Yeah. I I think this is a a feeling that someone can have that you're, you're despondent and desolate one moment. And the next moment your life is filled and Hashem did it.
1: Right. And I think that's like, that's a sort of Hana model, right? Where like she is desperate and then God just, does it and it's kind of just happens um I think that's right I think it and so I, I think certainly in like in the biblical te- text on its own yeah me yal- Yali at Eila, is like who did this for me God did it because like there's no other that's the only possible explanation this could even have like that's the only way it could make any sense um, But there's a kind of wonderment at like, these are these, in some sense, these children are are mine. But there's also a sense in which someone else did the the bearing. Or I mean, I think you could also read this potentially as like someone did the the midwifing. Um, Either way, um, those options are sort of sort of available. But what I want to suggest to you is that like, right, I said, said a few minutes ago that what I wanted to try to do was to convince you that the model of care of the woman carrying the stone so she doesn't miscarry, or the, the child wrapping the string around his arm so because he, he misses his father, that sort of expression of longing for someone who's not there, or maybe doesn't even yet exist um, in any kind of full way, um, is, is kind of central to the tradition. And it's actually the model that we use to think about what redemption even is from the get-go. Um, so that, I think, helps us kind of, re if we go back to what Benjamin was saying at the beginning and what we, we spent a lot of time with Benjamin last week, um, lets you reimagine thinking about an ethics of care, not only as about responding to some concrete, specific person, this child right now needs this, but instead to think, yeah, that's one experience of care that's really important, and there are these other experiences that are actually about longing for something that's absent, and that that longing can itself be something really powerful and a kind of has a religious meaning in the tradition as a kind of expectant hoping for redemption. And so those those experiences in our own lives can both help us kind of unlock what is the like, biblical, you know, what's the sort of narrative for the people, but also, and, and potentially also like, lend some meaning to those experiences, which can be, um, can be really, really difficult to, to be inside of um, in, in lots of different ways. So I think that's, I wanted you to see this kind of different mode of, um, of potentially doing ethics of care, because I think it opens up the range of experiences that we might be able to consider as resources. So just like I just gave you this passage from Benjamin, just as a like little quick reminder of like what's going on, right? This is the passage we saw in last week. The entirety of my child cannot be apprehended without the backdrop of the familiar and vice versa. I can't understand my child is different from me without some sense of like the way in which the child is like me. Um, fine, I, I just jump to the last sentence. The specific command can only be heard in the immediacy of one particular child at a particular moment. And what I wanna to suggest to you is that like in the kind of Roni Akara version of this story, actually it's not one particular child at all, it's this, this imagined or absent being. Yeah. Okay. So what I wanna do in our last few minutes is actually go back to where we started. Um, so in the first week, we read this incredibly sweet, wonderful Midrash, and we spent some time thinking about kind of what are the different models of care that are in the Midrash. And I want to now use our like new framework to see if we can see this Midrash in a different light than we saw it the last time. So I think I actually will read the whole thing, um, but, but fairly quickly so we remember the plot. Um, what's going on here is we're trying to explain the verse, um, ze'eli vehu this is my God and I will enshrine him or something. Um, what does it mean ze'eli? Who am I pointing to? And this midrash is an explanation of that question. All right. Rabbi Yehuda Omer, Rabbi Yehuda said, Mia ki luz la who said praise to God at the Song of the Sea. Hatinokot, the, the, the children or even babies. We'll spend some time figuring out how old they are if you haven't or we did last, first time and if you, you can remember. Um, okay. The children who Paro wanted to throw into the ocean because those children know God. All right, what does that even mean? Good question. So God, when an Israelite woman was about to give birth, she would go out into the field and give birth, and then she would leave the child there and say to God, I did what? what I was supposed to do? Now your turn ama ribio khaniaan hayya yurid hak hakadosh barh bi khwdo God would come down w khotih tiburan umm v'sachan. an w kal amar w el p'nai ihas pen hasa dem ba no ga nafshakh uktib umm ladatih lok et cetera, et cetera. So God would cut the umbilical cord and wash the child and anoint them. As it says in Yechezkel, I did all of those things for you. Right, so I, um, I, you were lying and then I, I cut your umbilical cord and I closed you and I bathed you in water, et cetera, the whole, the whole thing. Okay, good and they knew that and i i suckled them with um with milk and honey um wa basada and they would grow there in the field china emar rivava kat sama khatadana i i made you grow like the field wikivancha hayukadolim hayun khasi levete levatehen atel avotehen wa hayushaw lanahem mi hayaza Somebody they would go back to their houses and their parents would ask, What who took care of you? Like, how did this happen? Right. Presumably, like the mother at least seems to think either that God will take care of this child or she says that in anger, and nobody knows what's gonna happen to this child. All right, so who took care of you? A nice looking young man came down and took care of everything we needed. This is the person who did all of those things for us in Egypt, Ze right. li'dv So the reading here is the children point and say, this is my, this is God, God took care of me. And when we read this Midrash the last time, one of the things we spent some time talking about was the way that God cares for the children. And that's a kind of theological model for us for how we should be. Um, but it's also a kind of a, a source for thinking about care as potentially central to the Jewish tradition. I want to focus our attention not on God caring for the kids, but on the mothers. We did a little bit of that last time, but I want to do it kind of more deeply with this other stuff in mind. Because in a way, the mothers in this story have a kind of Isaiah-like experience, in that they have these children. They basically leave them for dead. And then they come back, and they say, who? took care of you like who did this right so there's a version of the kind of me Yali that Ela story and so if we do that I think there's a sort of potential redemptive story that goes on not for the children who survive and can stand at the sea and say this this is the God who did it but the more complicated like okay God this is in your hands now voice um, and also the, the parent who thinks that they've lost their child or maybe hopes one day that their child will come back and perform some kind of, right. we don't know what the, the women are doing, the par- both parents, but certainly we don't know what the mothers are doing in the interim period, other than like watching the kind of worsening of the situation around them. But I wanna suggest that actually they're also waiting for redemption in a kind of way. And that they're, whatever it is that they're doing in in the waiting for redemption is itself religiously significant and kind of can be excavated. So what I wanna suggest to you by the end of this series is that actually the the model of these women who are waiting for their children to be restored um, is also a model of care, but it's a model of care for somebody who's not present but, but there's something in kind of either keeping the hope alive or in nursing a certain kind of anger at God, depending on how you want to read. You could read it either way. But there's something kind of valuable religiously there that is worth, that is worth holding on to as an alternative model to the kind of like either God just, you know, look at God, God cares for us, and so we care for others but also forms of care that we don't, might not like recognize as central or important. So that's where I want to, want to leave you with, I want to leave you with one other small thought, which is that in the rabbinic mind, the redemption can be brought about by the mitzvot themselves, right? So if, if all of Israel kept Shabbat, then the redemption would come tomorrow, all kinds of different, different models for thinking about this. Certainly like there's all kinds of what we call theurgic models where like, you know, you do a mitzvah and that brings the redemption closer. But all of those kinds of ways of thinking are in themselves a way of performing this kind of expectation and hope that is also based on a loss, right? The redemption hasn't come. We're not here. We are expecting something. We're hoping for something that's not quite there yet. And that that actually might be just what meets vote are in some important way. And so it's not, it doesn't have to be kind of what Benjamin sets out, where like fill-in are about performing your membership in the nation and celebrating the redemption that's already happened. Actually, fill-in are are in some sense closer to this, like to an experience that just that's often described in feminine terms, first of all, and second of all is is an experience that's about longing for somebody who's not there and and it's it's sort of more the like boys going out with their knots or the women going out with their preservation student model of thinking about uh what meets vote are and what what redemption might be so thank you very much it has been a joy to learn with you these three weeks um
0: thank you sarah for this very 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 interesting final class in this series I'll miss you, and thank you to everyone who joined us today on Zoom, on Dresha Live, and on Facebook. We continue our full program tomorrow evening at 8 p.m. with the final session on virtual reality and genuine humanity, Can they Coexist? with Rabbi Zukir? In addition, we have many more classes happening right now, and always, you can find out more information as well as the registration links on our website at www.drisha.org classes or watch live at www.dresha.org live. Thank you again, Sarah, for the opportunity to learn with you. Thank you you so much. um, Three classes. And thanks again to everyone who attended. We hope to see you soon tomorrow evening um, at Rabbi Zuckier's class and in future classes here at Dresha. Have a wonderful night. Have
1: a wonderful evening, everyone. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Sarah.
1: Thanks.